0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details.
1: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry?
0: This word in your ear is brought to you thanks to NordVPN. And NordVPN stands for what, Mark Ellen? I can tell you with great confidence that stands for Virtual Private Network. Say that one more time. It's Virtual Private Network. Excellent. What is that, Mark? Yeah, that's where you come in. <laughs> That's a way to keep your data safe on the internet whenever you're logging in, either at home or abroad. Uh, VPN protects your identity and encrypts your data so that nobody can steal said identity. At the same time, it enables you to access the internet via servers in more than 50, count of 50, different countries... And this means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies and TV programs from all around the world. Do you know what struck me the other day um, while streaming movies and TV programs from around the world? There is a form of behavior that appears in just about every film nowadays that I have never indulged in. And I'm going to ask you whether you've ever done it yourself. Okay, are you ready? No, this is fascinating. Is have it involving you, young people or, you know, go on. What is it? Have you ever in your life stood at a bar and had a bartender deliver you some shots, which you then drink instantly before resuming your beer or your glass of wine or whatever? Have you ever done that, Mark Allen? Well, no, I haven't. But t- t- to be fair, the whole concept of shots came in. in. After you and I were at the age where we might be interested in partaking, I don't remember shots arriving till till kind of the publishing company we used to work for. I I, I can remember occasional shots appearing in the late nineties at but, their Christmas party. I, th- I think you're slightly wrong because if you were if you were to watch, for instance, The Wire. Okay, right. you know, The Wire is quite old now. You know, this is yeah. this is uh, over ten years ago now. now isn't it? You know, they never go for a drink without somebody. You know, having some shots in between the beer and just whacking it down, and then getting in a car and <laughs> driving, driving somewhere, That's right, yeah. singing words. But it, it's just this is in absolutely every film I see nowadays. The taking of shots, and I have never done it, and you have never done it either. And I'll warrant that most of our listeners have never done it either. It's just one of those mad conventions which hollywood propagates I mean, you no, know well make- i have had a shot i mean i have had a shot at various things but i haven't gone to a bar and had shots you know in between you know drinks or whatever so i know what the experience is like you know which is that you basically change gear in, in levels of intoxication instantly oh, whack you're suddenly cranked up a notch i wouldn't fancy it myself. you wouldn't you wouldn't Anyway, but I would no doubt continue seeing the taking of shots in movies and television programs. Uh, back to NordVPN. You can take advantage of a deal where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear, or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. It's risk-free because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Full details in the show notes, as ever.
1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Bert Bacharach, it struck me that that is the greatest run of hit singles from about 1961 to about 1969. I, 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 I suppose the only possible competition would be the Beatles. It is astonishing. There were about 20 hit singles, including things like Three Wheels on My Wagon, which actually I didn't know that he co-wrote that. Oh, really did Yeah, you? Three Wheels on My, on my Wagon. It's just, actually, I really and I was still, so, still rolling along. along. Where does that come from? Yeah. It's from the movie, wasn't it? And I'm singing this happy song. Oh, good. And there's two wheels on my wagon. And I think the wagon just stopped, didn't it? And the Cherokee caught up. It was absolutely... Was it Dick Van Dyke? I'm trying to remember. It was, no, sang I've tried to remember. I'm going to read to you. In front of me, I've got an alphabetical list of many of the best-known compositions of of Burt Bacharach. And I'm just going to tell you the names of them and see if you can instantly hear them in your head okay yep. here we go Alfie oh I can see Scylla singing it now and in that incredible clip on YouTube <laughs> go on yeah yeah Always something there to remind oh me? lord yes you can, it. It. You, oh, can you can absolutely. hear it absolutely you hear it here we here we go anyone who had the heart you oh can hear. Scylla yeah now yeah. the next one you may not hear so quickly because it has a slightly unusual title it's Arthur's theme, the best that you can do. And of course, the refrain of that is when you get caught between the moon and New York City. Isn't moon it? New York City. So it, it slightly throws you that. So that's less, less yeah, important. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the next one, Baby It's You, which of course Sherrell's and the Beatles yeah. did that. Yeah. Close to you. <laughs> Why do yes. birds suddenly the appear? Why do birds suddenly appear? I mean, can you do the first lines of these things? You, probably some of them, yeah. It's <laughs> incredible. Do you know the way to San Jose? I and mean, it's just absolutely astonishing. <laughs> absolutely astonishing, isn't it? I just don't know what to do with myself. Well, I can remember Dusty doing that on her on her BBC show. You with know, really? the orchestra. Oh, my God. I'll never fall in love again. Never what do you, what you, love you love get again. when you kiss a guy? You get enough germs You'll to get, catch get pneumonia. pneumonia. And when you do, he'll never, he'll fa- never phone you. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's Hal David, isn't it? Rather yeah, than yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, of course... I say a little prayer. It's just crill. And then magic moments. The Perico Magic moments. Absolutely. Magic <laughs> moments. Oh, and then God, I remember so vividly. We keep going. Make it easy on yourself. You know, Walkers. You, Walker Brothers and yeah. somebody else in the States, I think raindrops keep falling on my head. Well, I mean, was, yeah, absolutely. Which is, uh, which is the, it's the movie, isn't it? It's, it's Butch Bush, Cassidy on Bush Sunday. Yeah. The, the, the Bicycle and Catherine yeah. Ross. Oh, my God. The Look of Love. Yes. This, this yes. guy's in love with you. Trains and boats. Trains and, pl- and boats and planes. Planes go passing oh. by. Um, 24 Hours from Tulsa. You know, absolutely <laughs> I mean, brilliant. You can't believe that song was ever written. Come yeah. by. What the world needs now is love. What's new, Pussycat? And wives and lovers. Do you know wives and lovers? Wives should always be lovers too. Run to his arms the moment he comes home to you. I'm warning you. <laughs> That's good. You can yeah, actually, I don't know that one. Oh that. yeah, it was a uh, Dion, Dion Warwick, I think, uh, was uh, recorded it. Or oh, probably a load of people recorded it. But it's just they have a brilliant ability. This strange. is a, this is a Hal David thing, really. It's their brilliant ability also to put you into into physical situations. Oh yeah, songs, about combing your hair now, or I run for the bus, dear, or uh, this house is empty, or if you see me walking down the street. There's things where you can completely picture yourself in the predicament of the person in the song. So clever. Absolutely. But, um, no, backrack was extraordinary i first I was first aware of Burt Bacharach when he was <laughs> when he was the musical director for Marlena Dietrich, as he was for many years oh, right. okay, on, yeah on, yeah off and on, I think, for probably the best part of twenty years yeah and um and she used to pole up in the fifties and sixties on Sunday night at the London Palladium, you know. And she was kind of middle-aged at that point, but she yep. was a massive, glamorous figure. And uh, there was Bert, who, who was a musical director, so sort of young and handsome and craggy, sitting at the piano. And she, was, she absolutely adored him. You know, apparently she she never forgave him for marrying Angie Dickens. Oh, really? <laughs> of which there are fantastic photographs. Oh, I'm sure you've seen them. Well, I think one of them, I think it might be her, actually is wearing a kind of flared white trouser suit. And they look so 70s, don't they? They've stepped out of a scene absolutely, in Dallas or something. Absolutely, absolutely remarkable. But, he, you know, it's just the the sound of those... You know, it's more than just songwriting, isn't it? I think I think it's one of the key things about Bert Bacharach is he was usually involved in the recording of these songs. And so what he was writing were were as much records as they were songs, you know. Yeah. So so if you if you think of as we were trying to think just now of, uh, of Do You Know the Way to San Jose, you can hear every little musical yeah. you know, signature in there. You can hear every little bit of the uh, of the arrangement, can't you? And that was him, you know. And it's like you know, we're talking about Alfie and Cilla Black. He was there in the studio, you yeah. know, at Abbey Road. He He's was conducting, conducting it. Thirty-eight you know, takes he made her do, or something. Was it's it? It's absolutely, it's, astonishing. It's, it's absolutely astonishing when you think she was only about. What was what Was she, she like, must twenty-three or something? twenty-three? I think it's, aston- it's a relatively untried, girl. and you had to, you had to do that in front of a bunch of orchestral musicians. Who are not the most sympathetic coves in the world, and they're We're looking made, uh, at their watches, waiting for uh, well, yeah, Mozart well, at three o'clock or whatever. Well, well no, they're <laughs> they're going to go out they on the golf course, you know, when the yeah, yeah, when the yeah. clock strikes twelve or whatever. And but it's um, interesting that, that so much of the stuff that's been written about him was this idea that it was kind of easy listening, whatever the phrase <laughs> is, you know. And I think that just drives you absolutely crazy because you know his... his Musical education was extraordinary, wasn't it? You know, working as a dance band arranger in Germany. And then all that stuff. I've seen interviews with him talking about the New York clubs. He used to go and see, you know, Thelonious Monk and Coltrane and, uh, and all the bebop and jazz bands and all of that. You could hear the unison songs like Promises, Promises, the Dionne Warwick song. You know, the, 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 the kind of complexity of the structure of those things and the chord singers is absolutely amazing. So in that respect, he's very maligned, isn't he? Because easy listening is a different thing. You think it just—it's just very popular, but very rich and very, very, very layered. He was one of the great Obviously, musicians of our time. I don't yeah. think there's any doubt about that. Burt Bacharach. you know, and you know, far more sophisticated than than uh, than many of the people looking down their nose at him. Yeah, as, yeah, yeah, as yeah. Easy listening—it's you know, ridiculous. And and there was also. Very often something slightly kind of, well, I don't know about sinister, there's something sort of slinky about the, about, about the records, about yeah. the sound of the records he made, you know. And um, Steve Van Zandt was saying on Twitter the other day, what a shame he was never in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I thought to myself, he's got no place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, really. There's nothing rock and roll about back Crack at all, actually. It came from a very different tradition, you know. Yeah, And that was kind of great strength of it. There's hardly anything he did that was reliant on the beat at all. You know, it was you listened to it and the, you experienced it in a completely different no, way. No lush symphonic experience, wasn't it? It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have sat with it at all. And I'm sure it wouldn't have bothered him actually. No, I thought he was remotely interested in being considered <laughs> to be part of that world. So anyway, I interviewed him. Um, you met, did for Word, didn't you? I did for Word, and we, we used to have a thing on Word called Word of Mouth. You know, where we get we got people to. Um, musicians and writers and all sorts of people talk about favorite records or stuff they were listening to at the time whatever and um and so he was in britain i don't know what he was in i think he was in britain quite a lot of the time and uh and so i was invited to go and meet him uh he was down at his publicist's office in in west london and I suppose he would be he'd be in his eighties then, wouldn't he yeah. um but he's fabulously well preserved, and clearly, and this is no diss at all kind of like the attention you know oh, what I mean? absolutely. he liked he liked being still. You know, in the public eye, he liked you know the fact that he'd been in this game that long and still whippersnappers like me <laughs> knew who he was. You know what I mean? Yeah. And people, people respected him, and people like you know, like Elvis Costello and people like that that uh, queued up to work with him. You know, he, he liked the idea that he'd um, he'd maintained that for such a long time, and that uh, it's it's no small achievement. And you know. As ever, we shall not see his like again. The word podcast: prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, um, we had people round last night, Mark. Uh, that's why I'm a bit hungover this morning. Oh, and not um, <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> you, actually, it is doesn't like me. You're wearing the iron hat. I am wearing the iron hat <laughs> the or metallic millinery. <laughs> All to know what he said. He I said, oh, that's so, so we were bears repeating. Paul Denoyer. we used to have that expression when we were, I think it was a queue wearing the iron hat that you had to hang over. And I remember him coming in after a big night. I said, you're wearing the iron hat, Paul. He said, uh, I awoke this morning to see a wide range of metallic millinery available for my inspection. <laughs> and I chose, <laughs> he said, this jaunty beret, which I'm wearing at a rakish tilt, by which he meant... <laughs> Which he meant. I feel pretty good, <laughs> but he, he didn't want to say that. He he'd, he'd go for the uh, the the metallic millinery. Uh, oh, you know. do, don't you miss office jokes? Oh, that was so funny. I do just <laughs> just you know the same people you saw every day. You know, yeah. it was it was like it was like Reginald Perrin. You know, yeah, <laughs> elephants on the, the, the line. But the onus on you to come jokes. up with something different. Exactly. I know. I know. Very good. <laughs> yes. Was it was it Reginald Perrin's wife, and when he went to work every day, she used to say, "Have a good day." And what did he say, Mark? Can you remember? What did he oh, always say? He always trick. said, "Have a good day." And he went, "I won't." I won't. That's right. Every single time he left. Anyway, talk, I want to talk about humor actually because one of the things I missed, and I wouldn't have watched it anyway, probably because it was on telly last night, was the Brits. And I saw uh, about 10 minutes of it. Oh, right. right. Okay. Yeah. I got another report. But I saw the wet leg acceptance speech. classic <laughs> moments where they no one had thought about what they were gonna say. <laughs> they literally still they went, Well, yeah, this is this is weird. This is amazing. Yeah, this hi, is weird. no, you it's know, not weird, it's an award ceremony. It's surreal. <laughs> it's surreal, you know. <laughs> what? <laughs> but anyway, I love wet but, leg. I so think. I saw Sam Smith posing for the cameras. Wearing an extraordinary outfit that kind of looked like it looked like some of David Bowie's least advisable. Um, oh, he had a thing very like it, actually, didn't he? The he did. Inflatable legs, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I don't know. It was supposed to look like heart shape, was it, or something yeah. like that? It was Valentine's yeah. Day, and uh, to me, to my untutored eye, I was reminded of the Viz character Johnny Fart Pants. Yeah, can, absolutely. <laughs> Whether well, it's usually. There's usually something to indicate the sound that was coming from yeah, his heart. <laughs> that's right. <it> is. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Squeaky bum time. There was a lot of that. I saw some stuff on social. Somebody said something terribly funny. So, so let he that hasn't farted uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a one-piece zip-up condom be the first to you know <laughs> throw a stone or whatever. I thought <laughs> that's fair enough. And anyway, I saw this on social media where it was being presented uh, by people saying, well, of course, we shouldn't laugh at this. You know, this is this is a kind of expression of who he is. It's kind yeah. of, you know. And I just thought to myself, has it come to this? Not that pop stars can't wear what the hell they like. They can, and God bless them for doing it. Yeah. But... I insist we have a civil right to laugh at them if we yeah. want to. Yes, yeah. that's our part of the deal. Why is he worn that? He's worn that to get photos. to get attention, to get of attention. He has. and don't be and there's surprised. Going to be a percentage of those Some people. Of that that we attention is less yeah. than respectful. Yeah, it absolutely. will be. That's life. Yeah. Don't get in the public attention business if you don't want it. You know. Well, you can't get attention on that scale without without uh, it, it, it appealing to or, or getting noticed by the kind of people who wouldn't approve of it. I mean, that's the whole thing, isn't it? You're not just doing it to the converted. Well, you see, I'm, I'm, it's not I disapprove. I find it no, amusing. No, no, it's hilarious. No, I agree. And and I, all I think about nowadays, you know, when they're having kind of sage discussions about should they have a gender-neutral category in the British or not because they they adopted this and then found that they had no women on the short list. Which anybody could have told them that was going to happen, you know. But it did. Is that which um, is why the the women's category was invented in the first place because they never got recognised enough. And so I, saying, you know, I suppose so. Yeah, yes. no, it was. It was. Yeah. If you go way to back, sure yeah. that that women got awards. Yes. And uh, but if you are you know if you if you if you are struggling to kind of position the Brits, you know, uh, and and they clearly are. They, they desperately want attention, don't they, all yeah. the time. Please look at us. Look at us. We're giving each other prizes. Everybody should be really excited about it. Of course, everybody is not very excited about it at all. Here's my suggestion. What to do with the Brits, Mark? I've got one suggestion. Oh, go on. Go on. This is it. It's dramatic, but it's possible. Take it off the bloody television. Don't do it on television. Go and do it via some other means. Go and do it as a live event that you can't get into, or go and do it on some gaming channel on the internet or whatever. All the stuff that teenagers are really into has one thing in common. It's not on the bloody television. Yeah, that's the point, is that if you're aiming to get teenagers, then what teenagers are, A, watching mainstream television in the first place, and B, watching it on a Saturday night? That's <laughs> in Nine the o'clock, they're just not. Of course they're not. Um, you know, they they occupy kind of strange subterranean worlds, don't they, where yeah. they, they pursue their enthusiasms away from ITV or BBC yeah, or yeah. whatever, you know so that's what i think they should do as soon as the brits takes place without it being available to all of us and we hear about it through rumors suddenly people want to are quite (laughs) interested really interested you know it's the, the golden rule is where's the place everybody wants to go they want to go to the place they can't go that's the deal don't make it available you know and you've we've seen this happen with Smash Hits with the Smash Hits poll winners party years. Which, oh yeah, the moment our theory was that putting that on the television was well, ultimately well. the demise of Smash Hits. Of course actually, it was. Of course it was. Else. of course it was. Of course it was. Just it just ruined some of that magic. It let a little bit lighted, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it made it seem kind of normal no. and conventional and everything that actually it wasn't. It was a little was a little private club, wasn't it? TV kills everything. This is a junction in the word podcast. It's From this next bit.
1: Well, I've been absolutely
0: gripped by this, this collision, this massive public falling out between uh, Roger Waters and Polly Samson. Polly Samson, of course, married to David Gilmore. And this started, didn't it, with a tweet. I've got it here, actually. I'm going to read it out. Uh, from her. If anybody, from her, if anybody hasn't uh, heard mm. it, this is it. She said, um, she said, uh, it's uh, to Roger Waters. He says, you are anti-Semitic to your rotten core also a Putin apologist and a lying, thieving, hypocritical, tax-avoiding, lip-syncing, misogynistic, sick with envy, megalomaniac, enough of your nonsense. And then a little later, this was liked by David Gilmore, and then David Gilmore actually retweeted it with, I think, with the words, all of this is demonstrably true, I think. Um, I mean, that is... I think incendiary on a level that I can't, you think of the pop spats of the past day. <laughs> nothing. Oh, nothing my Lord. You know, the Everleys, you know, the Simon and Garth, I mean, you know, the, the Eagles, the Gallaghers, the Stones. I mean, I can't nothing, think of anything. Nothing. Because that. that is an attack on every single level it's an attack Absolutely. on a business level on a professional level it's an attack on a personal level it's an attack on a political level oh, it's every single aspect of that guy's character and capabilities is being i, I mean there are words in there that i just can't believe They, I, I mean Obviously, she must have checked that with a lawyer first, but thieving. Do, do mean, you think so? That? I very much doubt if do any lawyer has signed off that. I mean, uh, the, the the thing that, that amazed me was I saw this, and I said to you, th- there's this tweet from Polly Sensor. Yeah. And you said, oh, well, it'll get withdrawn. <laughs> I <laughs> Which did. We, well, we, you know, thought- we saw that when there, I think it had, had about maybe about 15,000 people had looked at it. And I kept tabs on that throughout the day. By the next morning, 10.6 million people had viewed it. And I it mean, wasn't, wasn't withdrawn. And it wasn't is, withdrawn. In because fact, it was just not, the reverse. It was endorsed. Absolutely. God, and, so, and so, I you know, I, this is – I can't understand how this came to happen. You yeah. know? There can't be – I mean, did otherwise rational people, regardless of their personal opinions, think – that this was a fire that they were going to start, that they would be able to put out. You know, I can't believe they thought that, you know. If you if you have those kind of feelings about somebody you've dealt with or close to you or whatever, the last bloody place in the world you put it was on Twitter, isn't it? I would have thought so. You know, you're better off ringing up the person and saying that to them. Yeah. You know, than doing that. Uh, you know, because I don't understand how you can how you can ever you can't take that back, can't you? You, can, no, you, can't. you, you can't. You can't can. modify it in any way, isn't you know? it, not remotely. And uh, and then to then back that up by saying it can be proved is is uh, I, I I just uh, it's absolutely astonishing. I mean, whatever started, I don't know. He gave an interview, didn't he? Where it, I mean, we we won't want to get into all the stuff of the political stuff, but he said stuff about. Uh, Israel v. Palestine. Oh, he and, says and, idiotic and, things all the time. I mean, it's, and, you know, her pa, Polly Sampson's father, arrived in Britain in 1938 on the Kinder transport. So mm-hmm. he's on, a, obviously, the extremely thin ice in that regard. Yeah, but sure. the thing that struck me that might have been another contributing factor was the fact this whole businessman re-recording um, Dark Side of the Moon, which I'm sure <laughs> you're, you're following, which is, again, absolutely amazing. There was a piece in The Telegraph, and... It made me realize or reminded me, I have interviewed him and I met him in the past, you know, he is a he's a very odd guy, Roger Waters. Is it fair to say that? I think it is. I mean, you know, he he's pictured as somebody rattling around inside this massive great mansion in, in Hampshire. And at one point, going past the window is a woman who turns out to be his his fifth wife, uh, who is his former chauffeur. Um he was 43 and he's 78 um you know a complicated guy do you remember he i think his first wife was judith trim who's the girl who appears on the cover of the gatefold cover of amma do you yeah, remember yeah, roger yeah, waters and yeah. jude it's on the cd came out later on she had been removed from the <laughs> sleeves so he's oh he's a complicated guy there's a detail in this piece which is absolutely haunting it's a picture of his great grandfather and it's in a frame on the on a bookshelf in his house. And uh, the frame is decorated with feathers. And the interviewer says, what are these feathers? He says, they're from a cormorant that I personally shot on my river. And you think, I just every aspect of that is so bizarre and so weird. So you're dealing with quite a peculiar fellow. But anyway, in this piece, he talks about re-recording the whole of Dark Side of the Moon, which he appears to have done most of it. And he played this guy a lot of it too. And... Uh, why has he done this? Well, mainly several reasons. One, to remind people that he is the main architect on the record. That really matters to him. I mean, he, he did write all the lyrics. He didn't write all the songs, actually. I think he wrote two of the songs. I think he co-wrote, co-wrote three of the songs, co-wrote two of them. And the rest, I think, were written by others, like Great King in the Sky by Rick Ryan, etc. And he's also absolutely wound up about the fact that the others, he says, can't write songs. So Nick Mason never tried to. he said uh, but the others they've got nothing to say. They're not artists. This is the late Rick Wright, and Gilmore is talking about it. They have no ideas, not a single one between them, and they never have, and that drives them crazy. I mean, that's that's pretty appalling don't it you think? Right. It I right. mean when you write a song, you know, okay, you've written the song, but it's the contributions of others in the way they play them, in the way they sing them, in the way they help arrange them. you know all those factors are absolutely crucial to the success of the of the venture, and the other reason he might have done it is to is is to to have the cop the copyright reason to sell copies of his own version of, of Dark Side of the Moon, which I think is negligible. I mean, yeah, vain, really negligible. People have re-recorded Taylor Swift and Squeeze and re recorded records in the hope that they will get used I- I- instead of the versions that someone else owns the copyright to. And then the third thing is that he wants to make clear what the songs were about and what he's apparently done. Is included spoken word passages on this record, um, which kind of point up some of the meaning. Which, which the guy on the Telegraph described something as being sort of like ter- terrible poetry, you know. So on every level, Dave, on every level, this seems bizarre, and and it's uh, yeah, in the, the release date's been put back as well because it's probably all sorts of copyright complications that uh, that may be may ultimately be insurmountable. Who knows? But it's the weirdest story, isn't it? The um you know, I was writing, <laughs> writing a thing the other day and uh, it, it wasn't, was it about people? I No, it wasn't. But, uh, you know, I was reflecting on bands and the kind yeah. of l- lives that they have. Yeah. And I said, they all start on a whim in a scout hut. Yeah. With a bunch of 16-year-olds. Yeah. And they only finish when the last lawyer has sent in the last bill on account of his being dead. Uh, When this started, you sent me that text. You sent me another text later, and you said, uh, said, lawyers are thumbing through their yacht catalogues. (laughs) (laughs) That's absolutely right. There's only ever one winner in situation. Only ever one. one It's not going to be Samson. There's There's only only one winner in these cases, and he or she is generally wearing a wig. You're listening to The Word
1: Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be.
0: And now we're joined by uh, old colleague and friend of the pod, Kate Mossman. Kate, hello, Kate.
1: Hello, how are you doing? Very Good.
0: good. We've seen you've been writing about Rick Rubins. Um, mm. Well, it's not an autobiography, is it? Uh, in uh, in the New Statesman. Oh, it's a very well, impressive-looking book. She holds. You'll up. see a
1: very revealing um, insignia on the front, which is just a circle with a small circle inside. Right. In this very expensively produced cloth-bound book with a, a bookmark, and I've just noticed some some pages of. Uh, uh, blank um lines in the back for your own notes. So you can recreate be
0: because it's about creativity, is it? Is that the yeah. idea?
1: What's the it's title? A, it's called The Creative Act, a way of being. Um, it's uh it was bought for I think a, a large amount of money um by its publisher. There, I think there was a bit of a fight over it. Um and it's sort of a supposed to be a creative manual. But the thing, obviously, Rick Rubin is one of the most successful producers of our time. Very, very famous producer, did some amazing things with some people. And um, this is a book about uh, creativity, but it sheds very little light on what what Rick Rubin actually does.
0: So it doesn't answer the question. This is the interesting thing, you know. it, It clearly has been associated with some very celebrated records as the producer but what does a producer do? what What have you concluded from the from reading the book about what a producer does?
1: From the book, um, very very little. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there are different kinds of producers, aren't there? There, there are producers where you know instantly who it is—the Spectre sound. Or I was thinking even of um, the other day. Do you remember Danger Mouse,
0: Brian from, Burton? You,
1: yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you he, he were so. He, the thing about producers is when they're successful. They're almost more successful than their chargers. They're sort of megastars. And then they suffer terribly when they fall out of fashion. Um, because no one wants to be touched by that sound, because it's so it's so appropriate. Yeah, that Trevor
0: that Horn's 80s sound is a good example of that, I think.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So actually, Rubin was in demand um, in the 1980s from people like Jagger and various other of these sort of these big figures. And he said no, apparently, because he didn't, he knew then that he didn't want to be. Associated with being someone's kind of uh, like a like a sort of a flush of, of fashion at that point, and then he'd fall out of fashion. So he, um, but yeah, to see, to know what Ruben actually does is kind of mysterious. He's famous for, of course, putting um, Johnny Cash in a very different light by giving him a nine-inch nails song, "Hurts," which was an industrial rock song. And making Cash in his 80s or however old he was sing this industrial rock song, and it was sort of about the clash of the genres, wasn't it? it, was, really, but it
0: that's a brilliant maneuver, though. I mean, that really it was. completely changed the whole concept of Johnny Cash and that old country and western showbiz world. I mean, I thought oh, that was genius. He may not have done very much, but that original idea was brilliant. You see, that's the key thing, is that Because he also had previous in doing that, doesn't he? By putting together Aerosmith and Run DMC, didn't he? Earlier exactly. On. He, so, yeah. It,
1: yeah, which, so started, which in
0: retrospect seems an utterly obvious thing to do, but yeah. at the time was was not an obvious thing to do. And also I wonder how
1: people. how how fashionable a thing it was to do at the time. You kind of you wonder the thing I liked that, that came across from Ruben, not in his book, but from interviews I read with him, is this extraordinary confidence in his own taste. And see, I thought, I, how many I, of us can claim that? I think
0: <laughs> I think that's the key thing with yeah. with him and with loads of producers, because you know, you get producers or engineers, you get producers who are arrangers, producers who are mates of the band or whatever. But what they all what they always have in common is they are they are the pair of ears that matters. You know, they are there listening and they're there going, yeah, that's all right, or no, that's not great, or mm. and more to the point, they're very often the person who says it's finished, stop, yeah,
1: <laughs> because yeah.
0: because most musicians will keep going forever.
1: When he was 23, he was um, he was he started Def Jam in his university dorm when he was 23 years old, and it kind of puts a, uh, it puts it in a certain um, frame if you think this is as a 23 year old guy who loved um, rap and heavy metal and started to do these what were effectively kind of sophisticated mashups. I think the sample that he the ACDC sample that he used for the Beastie Boys was was used illegally which got him into lots of hot water. So he just thought, like, I'm going to put these two things together. And same with Johnny Cash. He thought, well, I like Nine Inch Nails. Johnny Cash had never heard of Nine Inch Nails and never heard of the song Hurts. Depeche
0: Mode, like, yeah.
1: Yeah, and they just sort of they went with it. So that's what that's what he did. But it's frustrating because you you don't get any insight into what he does from reading in the this. book.
0: No, okay. Well, but, but but we can still. And you talk. don't get much insight from the people, do you? you don't sound uh, is, is it Slipknot who said that that they were in the studio with him for ages and they weren't even they weren't aware of what he did.
1: Yeah, well, it was very sort of uh, controversial because a lot of people moaned about him. Muse um, thanked him at an awards ceremony for teaching them how not to produce, and Slipknot said. <laughs> slipknot said that he served he said turned up four times and he overcharged but this might be a symptom of getting more and more famous but have,
0: have you also have you also interesting question have you ever heard an artist reflecting on a really successful record saying do you know what made the difference with that record the producer have you ever heard that i don't
1: think you ever have I wonder about William Orbit and Madonna and Ray of Light. I think that was very, very successful. That was a moment where they were they were kind of going to awards ceremonies together and he was seen as the person that had taken her into this new phase of her career. And but it he was got, Madonna. So.
0: He got fired probably. It was a romance he, too, I think. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he's he's an interesting one because he's sort of dropped, he was very, very fashionable. He did all saints. Um, so he did the the beach, the beach soundtrack and, and Ray of Light and Beautiful Stranger. So he did the Austin Powers kind of um, thing with Madonna. In, um, and then he did fall out of, of fashion and he fell out of work. And he was, you know, he was being sort of a jobbing songwriter in Los Angeles for a long time. I interviewed him recently and he's sort of he's on the other side of the tracks, as it were. He doesn't get the same work anymore at all. No,
0: I think, I think that's what happens. Do you know the other thing that's interesting to me about Rick Rubin is I think the beard is hugely important. <laughs> It is very important because it he's makes so him an old Testament prophet, you know. Yeah, and even John, look- Johnny Cash will sit down opposite this callow youth compared to Johnny Cash, but because he's got a long beard, he, he looks, looks like he wise. has wisdom to impart, <laughs> doesn't he? But
1: well, I like- think he—I think he's never drunk. He's never taken drugs. No. Um He is obsessed with wrestling, so yes. that was his sort of addiction. In the, that's where he got his darker feelings out was by watching wrestling. And apparently, if you tried to. Call him or interview him during that period, he'd be very angry. Um, he drinks uh, a certain brand of mineral water that I think he's worked out has the sort of the fewest sulfates in it, something like that. And he loves yoga and he lives in, a, I think he's got, where does he live? Some amazing. I imagine he lives
0: in a kind of geodesic dome in Big Sur or something. It's something a like famous,
1: yeah, he's got a famous <laughs> place in the Los Angeles Hills. Um, which is, you know, it's got, he's into Buddhism and things like that. So I think that's what he's trying to do in the book is, is sort of bring in various elements of um, psychology and and mindfulness and all those sorts of things to encourage people to be creative. But if it was just focused on one art form, it might make more sense, but it seems to be focused across all creativity. Um, uh, well, I, is... I don't
0: believe in that. You see, I think I think creativity is very specific. You're good at one thing. It doesn't transfer to anywhere else at all. But it's, yeah. interesting. it's interesting, everybody's decided that Rick Rubin is a genius and therefore mm. and therefore, his, his route is quite, you know, clear in front of him. You know, he just has mm. to turn up and be the genius. It's like, you know, films are made by hundreds of people but we've all decided Martin Scorsese is a genius. Yeah. yeah. We've all decided he, that without him it wouldn't work at all, which is probably not true, you know, but that's just the way we're happy you know, looking at the world isn't
1: it yeah and we love the idea that we might be able to get to get a little bit of of, of <laughs> that genius sort of bottled in a an instruction manual yeah, um yeah. and he, he talks about um uh chasing the magic notes the moments where it sort of hits the you know the, the golden ratio and you feel that you've done and i was thinking that's only going to mean something to people who are already quite good at being creative Yeah. <laughs> because no, I'm sure. if you can hit the magic notes then yeah, then you hit the magic notes anyway and you don't need to learn it. So it's, yeah. it's an interesting sort of sell. I, I wonder why they took it on in this state. It's,
0: uh... Uh, do you know, my theory is, what the key element in the, in the in that kind of latter-day um, Indian summer of Johnny Cash was. It's not Ruth Re- Rubin. It's not Johnny Cash. It's Andy Earl who took that photograph mm. on the cover of American Recordings. Oh, that's, yes. The, the <laughs> famous, Famous photograph of Johnny Cash with the two dogs and, and the kind of Old Testament preachers.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Coat, which was actually, I think it was taken in Holland. Oddly enough, this picture. You look at it, you think, oh, it must have been in Mississippi or whatever. Well, it's, like, it's like the contributions of Anton Corbine to U2. and to Those those pictures are actually uh, almost more important they in are. terms of their reinvention. Because than then, the you, they then, and you look at the the albums that came after it, they were, yeah, that's they were the picture trying, you trying to get a symbol, similar picture and unsuccessfully, yeah. Yeah. really.
1: Because but yeah. I think what's um, the, the the legacy of of Ruben is the fact that so many people copied this. I mean, it was it was an idea to be sort of Rubenized, isn't it? And and yeah, there's so the a number of yeah. country legends um, who who had that treatment. Glenn Campbell being uh, the one, obviously, that that sort of really surprised me because he was in a, a similar stage where he was kind of a slightly sort of washed up ex Vegas yes. term. Yes. Yeah. And then suddenly it was you know. Uh, look at this grizzled face, yes, look at these amazing lines, and and then listen to this song by Green Day being sung by this aged frame. It's, it's such like, wow. a bizarre
0: idea. It really is.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: That's exactly the same ruse, isn't it, really?
1: I guess the funny thing is... Did it really, work for it, Glen Campbell?
0: It's it a good, did. Re- it's a good record that Glen Campbell... Yeah. The- it, Whatever yeah. their record was called, introducing Glenn Campbell, wasn't it, or something like? that. It was,
1: that. yes, and it, it literally. It's I mean, a very it's, good title. It means that he's a household name again now, where he wasn't, and and you hear people all over the music industry, but oh, yeah, Glenn, he was, he's amazing, kind of thing. And it was that thing. And it's funny to think that Rubin couldn't um, patent that method, because yes. these were not Rubens that were doing yeah. this. I think they did it to Loretta. Was it Loretta Lynn? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was Jack White, wasn't Jack it? Jack White, yeah. Loretta Lynn, yes. Yeah, take away all the national well, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Willie, Willie
0: Nelson, I suppose, you know. So yeah. Willie Nelson yeah. became the craggy Willie Nelson is more popular than young, handsome Willie Nelson. Yes,
1: you know, and, say, of course, the our own Tom Jones, and that would, that would have been his son who... Yes. Um, I think his no,
0: it's Ethan, Ethan well, Johns, isn't it? Glyn Johns' son yeah. who produced yeah.
1: those records.
0: And exactly yes. the same time as they convinced him, the most significant thing with him was to stop dyeing his hair. Once his hair went white, you know, Tom Jones suddenly had a kind of sage-like depth and a different perspective. Yeah. It's all part of it, I think. Well, well let, let that the be the a lesson thing. to all of us. Go on. Yes.
1: Great Simon Hattinston, uh interview where, he, before Tom had stopped dyeing his hair, and he, he met his son, who's obviously his manager as well, and he said, uh uh, his son comes in, looks like a slightly older version of Tom. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: right. Although, weirdly, of course, Tom Jones is only, I think, something like 15 or 16 years older than his yes, son. Am that's I That's right? true. That's and the strange was story. only, I think, 14 or 15 years older. But anyway, that's another detail. Well, that's <laughs> yeah, something no. to think about in the rest of the day. Kate, lovely to talk to you. Lovely to see you. As Thank ever. You. See you soon. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Thank you.